e-commerce had barely taken off in India. I'm talking about a time when Nike was just a PowerPoint presentation and Flipkart was only selling books, right? So sounds weird right now, but uh, you know what I'm talking about. You've been with Mintra as well. So that's when we started. Four years, we were a bootstrapped company, uh, profitable, doing things our way, building the brand uh, very patiently, consciously, you know, brick by brick and doing it out of a non-metro city. I don't have an MBA. I'm not building out of a metro city. So if somebody says, you know, look, I don't have access to talent, etc. I I usually tell them that's not true. You can do it sitting anywhere, right? If I could do it, so could you. Hi, I'm Kausambi. A super hearty welcome to Shelf, Season 2, powered by Mason. Join me as I speak with some of the most amazing and trailblazing founders, enablers, and even investors in the world of commerce. We are going to uncover the latest in consumer trends, find out about game-changing technologies, and dive into those instinctive bets that are reshaping the world of commerce as we know today. So tune in and let's learn about the building blocks of commerce together. Hi, everybody. So we're back on episode three. And today I have with me Arush Chopra. He's the CEO and co-founder of Just Herbs, first-generation entrepreneur. Uh, he gave up his corporate career in Singapore to start Just Herbs with uh, Mega in 2014, his wife Mega. Interestingly, Arish's mother was a biochemist, and she studied Ayurveda and naturopathy and actually created on her own some very effective formulations, which Arush decided to brand under Just Herbs and bring to premium consumers in India. So very excited to hear more about this very interesting backstory, different from a ton of other people we have spoken to. Arush. We want to dive into that and zoom into the new wave of luxury commerce shoppers today in India. So welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So I think before we dive in, I started with a little bit of the snippet about, uh, you know, your backstory. So listeners definitely would want to know a bit more about that. Walk us through the story of where it all began. Yeah, I think so. You know, I've been doing this um, since the time I, I tell people D2C wasn't even a word. Like, so we didn't know we were, we were doing D2C when we started. Right? I moved back to India I used to live in Singapore, working the corporate life and uh, always wanted to do something on my own. Uh, the question was what? And I look back, my mom, she had this knack for mixing lotions and potions. And, you know, she's a, she's a biochemist by education. And then she studied Ayurveda. And what she was doing back home was, you know, definitely not a business, but a little bit more than a hobby. Because she would give those, you know, products to people. And, you know, the, the feedback was always fantastic. Mega, who's my wife now and my co-founder, was also my girlfriend back then when I was in college. And I would give her these, you know, little bottles a mom would prepare. And uh, she and her friends always thought that they were very effective. Although they were just three, four formulations, very basic, nothing very finished. But when I was working later on, I thought that, you look, you know, mom does this stuff. And uh, I think there's a big potential for this. And also, you know, just wanted to kind of just come back and do something of our own. It was never about sort of making money or riding the Ayurveda boom or what have you, right? Things weren't as sort of organized. The ecosystem hadn't been built up, the D2C ecosystem, the way it is today. There was nothing of that. So we came back and... uh, you know, a lot of people advise you that, why, why are you doing this? Why does the world need yet another natural beauty brand? They used to say that in 2014, they say that even now. Beauty is a very competitive market. They said that then, they say it now. So in spite of all that, we just decided to kind of put our heads down and start working. You know, right from getting the formulas right, getting 
getting the raw materials right, the supply chain right. We make the products ourselves, right? Uh, even now, uh, we manufacture them. So we're fully vertically integrated in that sense. So we started there with very, very humble beginnings, right? It's got a website made with some of my savings. I learned how to drive traffic to that website through paid means, through organic means, etc. Did all of that. E-commerce had barely taken off in India. I'm talking about a time when Nika was just a PowerPoint presentation and Flipkart was only selling books, right? So sounds weird right now, but uh, but I think you know what I'm talking about. You've, you've been with Mintra as well. So that's when we started. Four years, we were a bootstrapped company, profitable, doing things our way, building the brand very patiently, consciously, you know, brick by brick and doing it out of a non-metro city. So I tell people I, I'm a... I don't have an MBA. I didn't build. I'm not building out of a metro city. So if somebody says, you know, look, I don't have access to talent, etc., I, I usually tell them that's not true. You can do it sitting anywhere, right? If I could do it, so can you. So did that for about four years, and then we decided that we needed some external capital because if we really want to build a team and do this professionally, scale it up, then we will need money. So we raised a small amount of capital from a VC firm, but within. I think within 18 to 20 months of them sitting on our cap table, we gave them a very nice exit when Marico, the FMCG company, took a controlling stake uh, in the brand. Uh, and we continue to build it to this day from Chandigarh. Just the way it's just that the scale of things has changed, but the way we do things, etc., really has it. So that's that's us. You've been all over, right? Like Singapore, you spent quite a time, quite a while there. Holland before that. What made you choose India and that too back at a time when D2C was not even a thing? See, the thing was, uh, I always knew that I wanted to do something back home without being very patriotic about it. I think the idea was that whilst I was in Singapore, we would always pitch to clients uh, investment products, telling them that, look, we are, you know, we, we are investing in markets like Vietnam, Indonesia, where, you know, there's a lot of young population, high disposable income, etc., etc. And then I would think to myself, look, that is true of India. Right. That is basically this is like a microcosm of what we're seeing happening in India. And, you know, the amount of people there are in these island countries, there's probably more people in a state like Uttar Pradesh in India. Right. So what are we even doing here? We're quite young. We should definitely pack our bags back home and go back home and do something out there. And once we had decided that, I just thought that uh, having lived in the orderly sort of life of Singapore and Europe before that, I couldn't take the chaos of, you know, a Delhi or a Bombay. So there it was a personal decision to do something from where where I grew up. It's last 12, I was in Chandigarh. I thought I'll do something here. There was no ecosystem. Even now, it's very, it's, it's in a nascent stage here. But I guess uh, that's where the maximum growth comes from, from places where, you know, things are just getting set up. And that's basically what has happened. It's very interesting, very, you know, counterintuitive to think about, and especially back in 2015, 2014, thinking of starting, you know, in one of not the primary metro cities where you think about startups being starting out of. And I agree with you, like if, if someone comes back and says that, hey, like I'm in a different city, I don't have access, I think I'm going to quote uh, you and uh, just us from now on. The BBC is, of course, as you rightly said, a super fast growing segment in India, um, beauty and personal care. I think it's been traditionally very ingrained in India with Ayurvedic recipes and nuskas, if you may pass down generations, right? I heard like 2022, I think BBC grew to about 26.3 billion or something of like that sort dollars in India. It's a massive market. So with that burst of growth, I'm sure there's this paradox of choice 
for consumers today, right? So in the zero to one days, we'll, we'll break it down into two parts. I think in the zero to one days of Just Herbs, how long did it take for you to find that right segment and the right message? Because of course, I'm sure that would have taken a little bit of thought and some sort of iterations over there. And how did you continue to differentiate as you grew from one to 10 until the whole Marico infusion happened? So I think our journey there also, since we we never had seed capital or anything of that sort, there was never that luxury to sort of hire a professional design agency and make packaging. You know, packaging was done just sitting on the dining table, paying somebody part-time to come and use the software and make some labels. We would basically go deliver parcels ourselves. I still remember I saw there was a parcel which was from, you know, not too far away from where we lived. So I decided on my evening jog, I'm going to go deliver this parcel. You know, the guy said, you look like the owner of the company. And I'm like, yes, I am. And he and he called me inside and he gave me some Nimbu Pani. And then his wife, who had ordered the product, started asking me if I'm hiring and if I have space in my team. So it was, it was really that basic, right? So there's no like, big thinking or planning or anything. It was more about just going in and doing stuff. I'm talking about a time when the cash on delivery ecosystem wasn't developed. I mean, swear to God, this happened to us. I mean, we had to get some money from the courier and the guy's like, Wo paise to kharch ho gai. you know, my, my guy spent that money, right? I'm, I'm talking about when parcels used to get lost and, you know, they, even the logistics ecosystem was still getting built. It's been a lot of trial and error. It's been a lot of uh, mistakes, learnings that we've, we've gone through. And then I think to your question about how do you sort of I think what you were alluding to is that there's a lot of players and how do you kind of differentiate yourself? I think for us, you know, when I personally believe that when uh, when there's too many people talking about the same thing, the same features and benefits, etc., etc., um, there's no point talking about it, right? So we don't talk about the fact that we are paraben-free. We don't talk about the fact that, you know, we're free from X, Y, Z, you know, the certification, the claim, those are just a given, right? That's That's hygiene. There's no extra marks for that. Perhaps when we started, that was a novelty, but... Throughout this journey, we've always had to kind of respond to how the consumer has changed, right? And kept listening to the consumer very carefully. And I think we kind of built that into our DNA. So we are perhaps India's only company to actually crowdsource product development. So we've launched about five products where we actually invite customers to become participants in the product making process. So consumers would tell us, why don't you make X, Y, Z? And then we would make prototypes and then send it to them and then receive responses and then tweak the product. And then, you know, launch the final product. In fact, we used to be only into skincare and, you know, that's how we kind of expanded into categories. We got into makeup. We started uh, with Ayurvedic lipsticks. And as a tribute to the consumers who helped us, we even named those shades after women. So there's a shade like, so that's just an example of how we kind of thought innovatively to kind of become uh, close to the consumer, right? And, and create uh, what we call brand love. We continue to do that. Today, what Just Herbs is all about is that it's a, it's a full-stack beauty brand. What I mean is we straddle categories. We have skincare, hair care, fragrance, and makeup. And all of this is combined with a thread of uh, of wholesome beauty, right? And, and the philosophy is that of uh, traditional principles, modern practices, right? So it's uh, at the heart of it, it's all Ayurveda. But uh, we use modern science, uh, modern thinking, etc. to present products to you in a, in a format that uh, millennials and Gen Z uh, can use it. That's the essence of the brand. Got it. Interesting thing you mentioned is that in a way, what you're doing is you're taking the people and your consumers and your shoppers into your go-to-market strategy with your product expansion part of your strategy for sure, right? So if, if you have to sort of like step back and I'm sure a lot of 
our listeners are younger brands who are probably starting out a little bit. What would you share with them in retrospect as a little bit of a framework, however nascent, of how to think of bringing consumers into your go-to-market? How do you bring your consumer philosophy into your go-to-market strategy? No, I think, I mean, it depends on the category that you are in. I mean, I personally saw that beauty is one category which is very top-down, right? So I saw that around me, we're now in a world where everybody is kind of dictating what they want to watch they're not going to watch you know the regular tv programming they're going to seek out what they want on a netflix they want to order what they want right when they want it it's all about choice and here's a very big industry where there's absolutely zero choice right where you have absolutely zero say in the products you're going to consume so if i'm a big company with lots of marketing dollars i'm going to tell you that moroccan oil is really good for you right And then I'm going to create, you know, the classic definition of marketing, create wants and desires so that you end up buying that Moroccan oil. But the point is, what about coconut oil, which is locally available, is very good for you, right? And why can't we use the same, right? And why don't I ask you, what is it that you will need? Big companies can't do that because if it's not going to sell a million bottles, it's not worth their while. Whereas companies born on the internet are able to do that. And in that, if we take, if we make 10 such products, two of them might just become breakout bestsellers before we know it. And we and that has happened to us on multiple occasions, right? So that's how we thought that we should sort of systematize this and, you know, make this happen. Even today, if you go to our website, there's actually a section which, which is called crowdsource superfection, right? Where there's a list of products that, are, that we are actually working on where you can take part in those creations. Or you can submit new ideas, etc., so we cannot really live off consumer feedback, use that as a continuous feedback loop to improve and launch new products. That brings me to this campaign that I was noticed around nostalgia. Very funny, very interesting, Quirk, quirky characters, tongue-in-cheek references, like loved it. Loved the way these videos made me kind of think about the first impressions like of the equivalence of first impressions with fragrances though was that also something that uh, you know that, that the campaign or the trigger came through crowdsourcing or was it something more internal no no this one is, uh, in fact not uh, i think with perfumes we want to we wanted to crowdsource them but now there's that pressure of kind of launching products fast so we thought now that we're launching you know it's like it was like a soft launch of two fragrances we will launch many more which we will crowdsource but coming to this ad, I think the whole idea here was that the brand personality of Just Herbs is that of a sage rebel, right? So uh, so it's a sage, but it's also a rebel, right? So it talks sense. Uh, it's the kind of a voice which makes you go, okay, I never thought of it this way. But at the same time, it, it also challenges the status quo. So when we look at fragrance as a category, we see that it's always been sexualized, right? Because the real job of a fragrance is actually nothing. Mammals produce all sorts of scents to mainly attract a mate that's the whole idea behind fragrance so how do you kind of sell something which you cannot sort of feel touch and how do you sort of advertise it which is why usually fragrances are sexualized right and it's gone to a to a degree where you know there's you you cannot ignore advertising around fragrances right the guy sprays something four girls are falling over him etc etc so we thought that what is it that fragrances can actually do for you uh, which is basically they can make you smell really good Right. So and nothing beyond that. And if you if you land up you know, with a job or a date, we've got no role to play there. It's you. It's all you. Right. So so that was the germ of this idea. And then, you know, one thing led to the other. We we set up that lift, that lift that you see in that video is actually two doors, two people standing behind, pulling it down with ropes. I mean, I 
I'll post a video one day on how it was done. So it was a lot of fun. And then I was told that, you know, the brand that we are, people relate to us with our story, with with how my mom, myself and my wife started it. So why why aren't you in the video, etc. So, so it was all very, very organic, very on the spot. And we just came up with it. And it's, it's been getting a very nice response. Absolutely. I'm glad that uh, we heard it first here, that there's a, there's a fun video behind it on how the doors are getting pulled up. Would love to see that. Uh, keep us posted, Arush, for sure. Definitely, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's such a deep understanding of consumer when you're saying uh, of of us, of people, uh, when you're saying, uh, you know, how we just ignore fragrance ads now because of the whole over-sexualization, right? Yeah, because, you know, when we spoke to consumers, all they told us that it has to be long-lasting, right? And it has to smell really good. Nobody ever has the expectation that this is going to make me land a job or a date. And, you know, and I think and that's the brand personality, Sage Rebel. It fit very beautifully. Yeah, for sure. I loved it watching, you know, on YouTube. And then you go into this, you go into the rabbit hole of even other YouTube creators, like sort of breaking it down and stuff. And I was like, this is good. This is this is one of the better made, well made videos that I've seen in a while. So Recently, I think pretty recently, you took a decision to step into um, offline retail. And what made you in that? That was very interesting for me because you started online in a world when, as you said, COD was not even there. I mean, it was a hard time to start online. So why now and when in a brand's like, in re- if you step back and you have to give advice to others, when in a brand's life cycle does offline become inevitable? And uh, how would you advise others to think about it today? I'll answer it in two parts. I think the first is that we've been in, we've been online before as well. And depending on who you ask, uh, people are going to advise you that, you know, the first 100 crores you can build online and that is when you go offline, etc. We had off- offline ambitions from day one, right? We were like, you know, really excited. Uh, we were in love with the idea of having our own stores of places where people can walk in and experience the products, right? So we were a little emotionally biased. So we had five stores of our own. Before the pandemic, I don't know how we were doing it, but we were doing it and they were all paying for themselves. But when the pandemic hit, we shut all of them because that was the right thing to do because it was all about survival. And after the pandemic was over, we thought we will recalibrate our retail strategy. And this time, uh, what we've done is that we are following the retailer distributor model, which is well established in, in, in India. Uh, so we're doing that instead of opening our stores, right? So that's the whole thought around it. I think there is absolutely zero doubt in my mind that uh, whether you're a brand born on the internet or wherever, you do need a physical presence because we do live in the physical world. But uh, having said that, people used to tell us that you really can't sell things online. You know, how can somebody buy a face cream online, etc., etc. I think that is behind us. But uh, having said that, I think physical touch and feel is super important when you do it at what part of your journey gets dictated by a lot of things what your aov is etc etc if these are high value products can they afford the tax of uh, selling online all that is separate but you do need it at some point or the other when you know depends from category to category brand to brand how do you keep the you know the essence of just herbs in for example the campaign itself it's very very you right it's it gives that flavor out right so how do you now give that same experience and the feel offline and what what are some of these interesting things that you're thinking about in terms of just differentiating the offline stores from other uh, you know stores everybody's opening offline you know it's a good question you know that's something i, I think and worry about all the time 
So when we had our own stores, for example, that was it was easier. I personally, the first one I built was in Chandigarh. I personally stood there and saw how everything is being done. We used just three materials, wood, glass and stone to build the entire store. It was all white made in marble. You couldn't miss it. I mean, but now when we're in a distributed model, it's even tougher. And we're still learning and still sort of perfecting it. But I guess small little things will matter. You know, we've undergone a complete packaging overhaul to improve the, the shelf through of our products because your products can look a certain way if you're selling them in your own stores, right? Your logo does not need to really scream on the product, right? Uh, because it's a different way of selling. But when you're when you're in a beauty store competing with thousands of other brands on the shelf, your brand needs to be needs to be very well seen. Your your packaging. Even though it's the same shape of a bottle, which is a which is a regular mold that's available in the market, how do you dress it up so that it, it is on brand for you and it's working for you? So all those things had to be done. And then finally, the person, the promoter who's standing there explaining the product to the consumer has to be educated very, very well. Not saying we do it very well, but I think we're it's a constant struggle, it's constant learning on a daily basis that we're doing. The display, how your products are displayed, the the materials at the points of sale. So all of those things matter. So I guess those are the ways to tell the brand story. Yeah. And the reason I asked that is because recently on one of my air trips to Mumbai, walking through a mall and, uh, you know, there is a Mama Earth pop up on one side and then I walk down and then there's a, you know, sugar cosmetic on the other side. And honestly speaking, it, both were empty. You get into, there were people who are probably walking by looking a bit, but not really engaging. And then, uh, of course, the folks who are there who are standing and who are supposed to help like they don't of course they don't they're not connected to the brand they they're not they're not able to communicate or even give remotely to me the experience of why the brand started and then you have on the other hand the next floor had zara <laughs> zara and whatever else and then you know they're, they're kind of like trained there's the brand aura whatever right so there's a bunch of young kids who are walking in and i was just thinking it was going running through my mind what would make us you know, and I want to support. Uh, there is a Mama brand. There is a. I do want to get in, and I do want others to go in there. And, and it just felt very desolate, you know, somehow. And that's been constantly running in my mind. Like as we are, we all have to be on the channel. Like there's no question about it, right? We have to be where consumers are. But what do you do to even get consumers wherever footfalls are? You know. We've done our fair bit of experimentation with this. We've had events. So the idea was we put a store in the middle of uh, Juhu in Bombay. Pretty expensive real estate, but we thought it would give us a lot of eyeballs. Uh, we experimented with putting stores in malls versus high streets. And we, I personally am a fan of high streets in India more than malls. I think malls, uh, like you said, right? I mean, they have their own set of challenges uh, from the brand's point of view. High street has its own benefits. High streets, people still come and shop. Your signage is visible throughout. 24-7, you can leave the signboard on, etc., etc. So it's like a display ad for you. Your CAC doesn't change every day because your rentals are fixed, right? You know, the problem is how do you get consumers in, right? So you can use a bit of digital for that. So we would do a lot of events there where we would then go live on our Insta handle. So people in the smaller cities would know, okay, this is a legit brand because, it, you know, they've got a store in Bombay. There are people uh, who look like these guys know what they should be using on their skin, are buying their products here. So let me also order something online if I'm sitting in a Kanpur or a Lucknow. Now what we are doing is we're going actually to Kanpur and Lucknow. Uh, so we've put, we've kind of reached where these consumers are closer to them. Of course, our consumer database is much, much bigger now. So we are very data rich. So we look at that data and decide what we should do as far as offline is concerned.
interesting thought you uh, you know mentioned i just want to pull the thread there about almost you what you're doing is you're bringing online and offline together in some way with this like contest or an event and some examples of that would be super exciting like have you actually run contests that drove people offline to online or offline to online to offline or anything anything that comes to mind yeah 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 so a lot of times you know so the offers that we have for example we have some offers which are available only in store like we've had those in the past we've used influencers instagram influencers to drive awareness about a physical store you know that there are people out there still who would much rather go and shop in a store they know the brand they've been sitting on the fence about it they're somewhere in the middle of the funnel but that conversion has to happen in the store i don't know why like in the city that i live in in chandigarh i think when we opened our store here we thought it's such a it's a very small market do we should we even do this and when we opened the store and and when and when the revenue started rolling in we were noticing that we had entirely new customers like these weren't people who shop online right which kind of made us conclude that these people were not anyway perhaps were not going to shop online whether we like it or not there is still a large chunk of people who do not feel comfortable shopping online of course the people who shop online is increasing every day but still the there is a massive chunk of people who don't right and so it's not about saying that i'm a digital brand and i'm not going to go online and you know stuff like that it's 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 just the way it is right you got to be where your consumer is it's more more about that do you think for luxury like in the space for you specifically just up you know when i think about it and i look at your packaging and just feel the product it is definitely luxury right it's it's more luxury than a bunch of you know other bpc brands that are out there and do you think it gets more important for luxury first brands or who are at least premium you know brands to have a more omni channel approach i don't think that's the thing right i mean i, I mean for us also we are more premium etc in in the way we look our formulas etc but we do have a lot of affordable price points as well so we're more of a mastige brand i would say but i think for more expensive items which we are not what you are saying makes a lot of sense but even for people with our price back bracket and below i still think that offline is important because even within offline there are many many formats available in india right so uh, being in a mall is just one format within the mall do you have your own store whether you have a kiosk there's a, there's a lot of formats to play whether you want to do beauty shops whether you want to do modern trade whether you want to do general trade so you know, there's your price point and your brand will also dictate the choice of the channel so one way or the other it's important to have that offline component in the mix yeah loving the conversation as you're looking like where you are today and it's been a long journey and building the brand with Marico uh, as a partner too what has been like when you think back i'm sure having well known well loved company like marico who also has deep roots is pretty much into grassroots india right i'm sure they added a lot ton of value like talk talk to a little bit about that what were some of the things that really you couldn't imagine and really opened up because of marico joining you very early on yeah yeah no i think we were very excited about partnering with them uh, mainly because they appreciate the fact that how young companies like ours uh, have to work or should work or or work by default which is like very fast right and be very nimble so we continue to be in chandigarh where we are and uh, you know it's a it's a good arrangement in that whenever they need some learnings those keep happening whenever we need any help we reach out to them so definitely i mean the points of uh, you know intersection and where 
Mariko can help us. Uh, it's just just far too many to be stating here, actually. But if I had to give you some examples for even the smallest of things, like, you know, we're facing trouble with, let's say, a packaging vendor, right? And because we were very small and, you know, people don't want to give us the best rates or do smaller MOQs, etc. They would open up their, you know, ecosystem to us and see how sometimes it works the other way around also. Sometimes, you know, we can get a better rate from somebody because we're a startup and they're getting very high rates because they're Marico. So it, it works both ways. It helps both people. So I think that's what a true partnership is all about. And digital learnings is another thing. So I think Marico stepped up its digital uh, engine in a big way. It's a mandate for the management. A lot of learnings have flown in through us. We have also learned a lot in that process formulations R&D is another another aspect where with Marico's might I think we have uh, benefited immensely right so those are some of the areas I can think of yeah you mentioned like just before the pandemic you had your own stores you had to of course take the logical step during pandemic and then things change and then a lot of things have evolved very very quickly in these last couple of years it's like constantly shifting and now with AI a lot of things especially uh, you know even people are questioning like what's really going to happen and so what are some of these I think top two or three things that you're noticing very vividly as things shifted from the pandemic to now and now to the next five or ten years what are these top two three things in your mind I wouldn't say I don't know when this happened but I think I would take the last decade or so, I think people used to think that brands born on the internet are not legit brands. Only bargain hunters go online. You know, the stuff you buy online is not genuine, etc., etc. And now, you know, that's not the case anymore. D2C, you know, internet first brands are legit brands. You know, they are brands in their own right. And I think that recognition and that acceptance has definitely gone up among consumers. I think this is only the start is what I think. That's one very clear shift that I've seen. And the other thing is that like Q-commerce is something that I'm really fascinated by. I mean, we thought people are going to buy, you know, cup noodles, etc. on Q-commerce and, you know, who would buy cosmetics? Uh, people are buying. We're getting very good responses around there. Early stages for, for Q-commerce in India. But uh, I think very, very exciting times for that, especially around the food category is what I'm seeing, but but also cosmetics and beauty, etc., where we are at. Uh, the other thing is uh, very, very excited about, like you said, AI as well, and what that would mean for e-commerce and for our industry in particular. Uh, so yeah, so these, these two or three sort of uh, areas are something I'm closely watching. Awesome. As we're wrapping up, I wish I could, uh, you know, double click a little bit more uh, on on what's coming up next. But as we wrap up, first of all, Arsh, thank you so much. I really uh, found a ton of interesting insights and love the way you as an operator, you're talking about, you know, your specific campaign and how it started and the integrities of running the campaign on one side. And then you're zooming out and you're talking about the next decade and things that you look forward. I, I think I love that about talking to founders is that breadth that you can operate within a 30 minutes conversation it's just amazing what would be as you close what what would be you know some advice or parting words from for our listeners specifically thinking about the consumers right like ultimately all of us are building for someone how do you advise folks to keep that in mind and what could be some of the takeaways the biggest thing is that what seems like a small niche, a small market today can become very big, very quickly before you know it. So if you really have a belief in something, 
keep at it. Don't read too many reports, too many market sizing studies, etc., etc. If you have a hundred paying customers who are willing to pay you stuff, just go for it. The reports, etc., are written after speaking to people like you and I, to founders, right? That is yesterday's news, right? So if something is, if a report says this market is this big, that is already done, right? I mean, don't form opinions after reading reports. Speak to consumers. Make product, ship product, right? Keep shipping product and keep learning, right? That's that's most important. And keep at it. I think that's those are the only two or three things I would like to say. Keep shipping. I love that. And with that, we close. Keep shipping, people. And we'll definitely try and bring Arush and probably his wife back together at some point soon. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And that's a wrap for today. We'll catch you guys uh, on the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it. That was awesome. And thank you, folks, for listening in. If you enjoyed the chat, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast right here. And of course, do hop on to Mason at www.getmason.io. That's www.getmason.io. We got more Ace in the Hole insights, conversion tips, and just everything that you need to scale your e-commerce brand. Catch you next time.